mindfulness mode. Just be really present with your unique circumstances. Be patient with yourself and allow yourself to be the co-creator of your curriculum. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and mindfulness life coach, Bruce Langford. Hey, Mindful Tribe. I'm here with a very renowned mindfulness meditation guy. You've heard of him. I'm sure of that. He's written four books and he has a new book which has so many tools and so much wonderful insight that you can tell he's been studying this subject for quite some time. I'm here today with Benjamin Decker. Ben, are you in mindfulness mode today? Oh, I'm in mindfulness mode today. It's my pleasure to have you here. And yes, I'm, I'm looking at the book right now, Modern Spirituality. We'll get in and we'll talk about this book. But what does mindfulness mean to you? Let's start with that question. Uh, I see mindfulness as um, a synonym to consciousness, uh, total awareness. Uh, when we break down the word mindfulness, um, I like to think of the mind filling the moment. Um, the, the moment being full of the mind. And by, by that, I mean being totally present to all of the different dynamics and aspects of what's happening in any given situation. So mindful conversation, uh, mindful uh, communication, mindful eating, mindful mindfulness meditation practices, mindful walking, bringing the conscious awareness into the experience. Mindful Tribe, I'm going to share a little bit more about Benjamin before we continue the interview. Benjamin W. Decker is a meditation teacher and social activist. He's been mentored by Marianne Williamson. He's a best-selling author of four books, like I already said. His newest one is Modern Spirituality, and the subtitle is A Guide to the Heart of Mindfulness, Meditation, and the Art of Healing, which articulates a spiritual awakening taking place around the globe, and you can be a part of it. So let's start with that spiritual awakening. What does that mean to you, and what should it mean to our listeners, Ben? Well, the idea that there's a spiritual awakening going around the globe isn't a new one. No, um, It's an idea that the ancient traditions prophesied, um, and that, that something would be happening um, when we when we do a a study of the core teachings, the core fundamental teachings of the major world religions, we find a few things in common, and um, among them we find love, connection, community, those kinds of things being relevant and important. Uh, the notion of the self transformation of the individual to become more divine, more holy, more pure—that's uh, something that we find in common. And then what we find also in common are the, is the notion of prophecies of a future time when there would be a, a, a peaceful world, uh, a time when there would be, in the Christian tradition, uh, they refer to it as the end times, the uh, second coming of Christ will inaugurate a thousand years of peace. In the Jewish tradition, they're awaiting the Messiah. In the Hindu tradition, we hear of the final incarnation of Krishna, um, who will minister to all people in the world. In the Buddhist tradition, we hear of the future Buddha, the Maitreya Buddha, who will be the final Buddha. Um, and, and we could really go on. Um, but what, what I'm saying is, what I'm positing is that the awakening and the inauguration of a peaceful era that all of the different world traditions refer to uh, is actually in uh, fetus right now. And it, it remains a dormant possibility uh, in the hearts and minds of the living people of, around the world today. Um, so there's, a, there's an opportunity. That's why I say you can be a part of it. Um, you can be a part of it because it's not about someone coming from the sky, even though if, if an alien messiah came from the sky, I think that'd be very interesting. Uh, but it's more about, uh, as I present in the book, a, a metaphysical reinterpretation of those original prophecies, opening our minds and our hearts to the idea that we could actually be the ones that we've been waiting for. And, um, and that through our collaboration and co-creation, we could inaugurate this, uh, this 
thousand years of peace, this era of peace, this new chapter of peace in, in the world order. Well, it's fascinating. And of course, I've heard this many places and I've heard it put in many different ways. And you're able to put it in a very concise way. And that's why you're able to write such successful books, I think. I'm fascinated by the fact that you've been mentored by Marianne Williamson. Tell me about that. What's something that you really learned from Marianne that has been pivotal in your life? Well, I think that Marianne is a is a mentor and anyone who follows her work and really lives in her world, who's receptive to her counsel, can consider themselves mentored by her. Um, she doesn't behave differently in private than she does in public. She's uh, she's very much a, an integrated individual. And um, what I what I found is, you know, I first met her when she was running for Congress. I had her support and endorsement for all of my books, especially that first one, um, and uh, worked for her full time on her campaign for president as well. Um, what I really learned is this model that she gave me more than any um, direct teaching or direct mentorship, which, by the way, a lot of that was very influential. Her books, her teachings, her writings, her perspectives, her guidance, her recommendations over the years, all of that. I never took a single word she said lightly and always took it to heart. Um, and and one of the, the, the biggest idea is this idea of where spirituality becomes practical, um, which is why that word became the first word in the title of my first book, Practical Meditation for Beginners. In fact, Modern Spirituality, the book we're talking about today, um, was almost called Practical Spirituality. Um, and as you know, reading the book, it's very practical, uh, but we went with the, the title Modern Spirituality. Uh, but I got that transmission of practical spirituality really from Marianne. Uh, she's someone who takes these spiritual practices as much as she can into her life. And then she also applies them out into the world. And so I'm very inspired by uh, her decision to step outside of her industry, step outside of the comfort zone and be herself, expanding herself, allowing um, herself to be put um, in such a challenging place of direct ridicule and uh, criticism and critique uh, in the public eye as running for office. So, so definitely, um, sac self-sacrifice um, in a way that uh, is really meaningful, you know, to because I have been given much, I too must give, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's this idea that because I'm intelligent and I'm strong and resourceful and successful, um, I, I now have a power to support the, the movement, to support uh, people in the world, you know. And so that's what I've seen her do as as her career grows and expands she empowers others she she vets and studies and researches individuals before she uh, supports them or endorses them or shouts them out or quotes them or anything like that and it's a real depth of integrity and intention to integrity that i think that she's given more than anything well i certainly agree it's incredible courage that she's showing with what she does. Now, near the beginning of the book, Ben, you outline four fundamental steps for letting go. And anybody that studies mindfulness or practice mindfulness, you know, we know that letting go is one of the big things that we need to, to work on. And you actually have, uh, yeah, these four fundamental steps. And I'm wondering if you could shed some light on what those steps are with our listeners. Uh, yeah, the the idea is that um, the sooner that we let go of what doesn't work for us, the more we can recalibrate and heal from it. Um, the way that I sometimes like to think about it is if you had a wound, you need to clean it and you need to clean it out and you need to take any foreign material or foreign bodies out of that wound so it can then be nurtured, nourished and ultimately healed. And so when we're holding on to things that don't serve our highest good, what we're doing is maintaining samsara, right? In the Buddhist tradition, then the cycle of samsara. Um, and the way I look at samsara is less about the reincarnation of the entire body and more about the patterns that we exhibit and play out in our daily lives. 
So the, the, the bad habits, the addictive behaviors, uh, the dysfunctional patterns that we have, all those things are samsara. And so the sooner we can let go of the trauma and the drama and the, and the uh, false beliefs that are holding us back, the, the sooner we can become more and more who we really are and find that, that power and that authority that comes with having overcome and let go of certain things. Um, and so the four, the four steps are, the first one is identifying the belief. Um, and, and with that, you also don't just want to identify the one uh, belief that you want to let go or, or the idea that you want to let go. You also want to be with it for a moment. You want to mindfully meditate on it and observe all the different ways that that belief may show up in your life. Um, and then in the, the second step is to to recognize its possible sources. So you look to the source. First, you identified it. You've identified the symptoms and the manifestations of it in your life. And then you seek the source. You look to where that, where that belief really came from. And that's whether it's an experience, um, a memory, something that you saw, something that you believe for one reason or another. Uh, you don't need to have a dramatic childhood traumatic experience uh, in order to have the result of trauma in your personality, just from a scary movie, just from lies that, that someone told you, just from uh, cultural and religious indoctrination, there can be traumas and dramas that, that cause internalized dysfunctional beliefs. Um, so, so once we've recognized it, where we find it in our lives, we then go to the source. We seek to locate where it came from. And then while we're locating where it came from, we have to be become neutral around it. So in that place, we let go of the shame and the guilt around it. Um, it's okay to not like a behavior that you're doing and wanting to disengage from it. But you, what, what's not helpful is hating yourself for it. And that can be really hard when, especially if you've been trying to do something, let's say you've been trying to, to um, uh, overcome a certain behavior and you've really made a lot of progress. And then one day before you realize it, you're, you're doing the walk of shame right after having, having indulged one more time in that bad habit that you didn't mean to do and that you didn't want to do, that you thought that you were over, you thought you were getting better, you thought you were beyond. Look, when we're really letting it go, we have to identify the thought that caused those things, the source of those thoughts. And then when we're in that space of recognizing the source, we must neutralize any shame or guilt around it. We have to realize that these are, that there's a source, which means that there's a cause. Um, which means it's not that you're a bad soul. It's not that there's something that's damning about you. It's not that you're not good. It's not that you're pathetic or a loser or anything like that. It's that something was rewired somewhere. Um, and, and it's not anyone's fault. It's a no-fault universe. It's about disengaging from that dysfunctional behavior so a healthy replacement can come in. And then the third step um, is that decision of letting it go. And you've got to powerfully have, you've got to contend, you've got to fight for it, you've got to commit. That's why in the book I say powerfully decide to let it go. So you've got to change your whole energy around it. And you've got to fight for your life. You know, when you're working with addicts, um, sex addicts, drug addicts, food addicts, porn addicts, all these different kinds of addictions that we have, you've got you've to deal with that dysfunctional behavior, but you've got to go in and you've got to find its sources. And then once we can start to see that, we've got to say, I'm not doing this anymore. I need you to fight with me. I need that. The addict has to be the one that says, I am choosing to let these dysfunctional patterns, thoughts, or beliefs go. You know, and and in certain moments in our lives, all of us, we are the addict and we have to be in that humble place of willing to recognize uh, that we're not all powerful, that we're not God. You know, um, there's this in entire challenge. It's a little bit of a uh, uh, tangent, but it's the difference between being a child of God and being God. Um, there's this reality where we have to be humble in order to overcome our character defects and let these things go. That fourth, the fourth component, the fourth step in letting it go, the first one being identifying 
uh, what, what doesn't serve you and all the ways that it shows up in your life. The second one is recognizing its possible sources and letting go of any shame judgment associated with it. The third one is powerfully deciding to let it go. That's important, powerfully deciding to let it go. And then the fourth and final step is the commitment to the new ways of both thinking and operating. So you've got to have the yin and the yang. You've got to think differently and behave differently simultaneously. And that's it. That's the commitment. And when you're when you're committed to that new thing, the the old thing can't exist in the rhythm of that new behavior, that new way of thinking. I really appreciate you going over that, Ben. And Mindful Tribe, take every word that Ben is saying and realize that this is true wisdom. Ben, I absolutely loved reading the book. And one of the things that came to me when I read the book is, wow, Ben has accomplished something that a lot of people don't. And that is, when I read this book, I feel... It's a welcome read, whether I'm religious in a certain way, whether I'm an advanced meditator, an advanced mindfulness person, or just beginning. It seems as though you have captured that, and you've just made this book accessible to everybody. Was that one of your goals? And if it was, how do you think from your end you achieved it? Because from my end, it really seems like you did. Well, thank you so much. That makes me so happy to hear. Uh, and yes, that was a, a core fundamental goal for all four of my books. Um, and I learned different things. Um, one of my books is called Meditations on Christ, and that one's specifically targeting a Christian audience. So I will say that. Um, but the but even with that book, the goal, we have to realize that religions are internally diverse. So Christianity itself is very diverse. So even if someone doesn't identify as a Christian, um, when you when you look at a book that's for Christians, it may be for any one denomination. Um, and even within each denomination, they're internally diverse. So there was as much as it may seem like that one wasn't in, intended to be multifaceted and diverse. It actually it actually was in its own way. Uh, but the other three books are really more intended for um, people who are, yes, Christian, but also Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist. Um, spiritual, not religious, Islamic, uh, uh, followers of the indigenous traditions and practices. And, um, and that was really the crux of this book, Modern Spirituality. It's really the, the core goal and fundamental principle behind it. And it is the notion of a global spirituality. And I can't take all the credit for it because all of the different teachings and, and things that I've studied were what helped bring this information to me. As Isaac Newton says, he's, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, so I was, I, there were a few schools, literal schools of thought that um, initiated me into certain ideas around these points. And the first one was the one I was born into. I was born into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And this is a faction of Christianity, uh, part of the Latter-day Saints movement of Christianity, that incorporated uh, Masonic ceremonial temple ritual, uh, which is, of course, descendant from Egyptian practices. And so I was raised in a spiritual tradition that, that revered um, Judaism, that revered uh, the the wisdom of God in any tradition. That's one thing many people don't know about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, people call them Mormons, but the, uh, the, the thing that's important to realize is that in the founding documents of the church, there is something called the Articles of Faith. There are 13 Articles of Faith, and they're sort of like the uh, Bill of Rights or the Constitution of the church. And the 13th Article of Faith opens it up for exploration and study of other world traditions. So my mother was named Karma. Um, and so just happen, happened to be raised by a Mormon family uh, with a woman named Karma. And so we had books on Karma that people had given my mother as sort of novelty jokes, but I read them when I was a kid. My mother was a fan of John Gray's work, um, uh, Don Miguel Ruiz's work. So when I was very young, I was exposed to these ideas. We had books like Conversations of, with God at Home. And along with a very uh, clear and determined and, and direct <laughs> indoctrination into the LDS Church, um, I joined the priesthood when I was 12 years old, um, began performing temple rituals, 
when I was 14. And, um, and when I was about 16 years old, I learned about the Theosophical Society. And so I began distance study programs way before uh, the pandemic required us all to uh, with organizations like the Theosophical Society, the Philosophic Research Society, uh, the Arcane School, uh, the Self-Realization Fellowship, and all these different traditions were ones that drew upon the wisdom of uh, many different spiritual traditions. And so throughout this process, I wanted to be able to share with my parents and with my, my loved ones these things that I was learning. And I learned that for me, I had a grace in understanding where I could easily understand what was happening in other traditions and I could easily identify parallels and I could see the spirit move, so to speak, through all these different traditions. And um, I found that when I would share them with my Christian friends and family, a lot of times um, some of the languaging made them uncomfortable. A lot of times words needed to be redefined or explained to them. And then I found the same to be true whenever I used any kind of Christian terminology or languaging with my friends who didn't identify as Christian, um, like words like Holy Spirit and God and things like that. Um, and so what, what became, what started to happen was I found myself speaking multiple languages. I became multilingual. I started to speak Christianese and Buddhismese and Hinduese. And, and I started to use a different set of jargon with different people with each person. And still with private clients, I will work with the individual. If they're Christian, I'll work with them really specifically around their faith, um, et cetera, and any other relationship to, to religion or, or faith. Um, but what, what ultimately came through was the reality that a new language needed to be born. Um, it's kind of interesting, long after I wrote this book, not long after, but after the book already came out, I heard a podcast interview uh, that Marianne Williamson and Caroline Mace did together. And they said um, that a new theology needed to be born in order for new ideology to, to um, make itself manifest politically and socially. And, um, and this book is not a theological treatise. Modern spirituality is not a, a new theology, but it is an experiment. It's a practice in, in applying these scientifically proven techniques in the context of a spiritual practice de determined by your own authenticity based on your relationship to what's happening and your relationship to uh, what spirituality is for you. So meeting you exactly where you're at. And for me, as a Christian, um, I think that's what Jesus would have done. I don't think that uh, if the Buddha or Jesus were here, I don't think he would have needed anyone to say their name. Um, I think it would have been more than anything about the opening of the heart and the and the sincere attempt at uh, self-purification, healing, and and compassion towards others. And so, do you still consider yourself a devout follower of the Church of the Latter Day Saints? I consider myself a Latter Day Saint. I consider myself a, a follower of Jesus Christ, um, and I consider Jesus Christ as someone who's bigger and more different than most Christians realize. Um, and so I, I see it all from a more complete, holistic, cosmic perspective. I believe that there is a, a mighty creative force that lie back of all things that exist in the universe. And I believe that we are that. We are made out of that and that we have special gifts as human beings that other living creatures don't have. Um, and, I, and I do believe in the idea and the, and the concept of the saving grace of the Christ. Um, and I do believe in our ability to, to receive personal revelation around specific questions we might have, um, because I do believe that the, that the kingdom of heaven is within. I also believe that we're connected to each other. We're inextricably linked to each other. We're intimately connected to each other for eternity, no matter what we say or do. Um, and that everyone uh, will have a highly unique individualized experience with, with spirituality. And, and, I, and I learned from Marianne, one of the important things that she guided me through specifically was the, um, the healing of my relationship to my childhood religion. 
So I, I did have a lot of anger and fear and, and frustration and shame and guilt associated with my childhood religion that no one seemed to care about. Didn't mm -hmm. seem like anyone was really trying to ameliorate it. They just wanted to keep telling me that, oh, just because that you feel that way or that happened doesn't mean the church isn't true. And, and after a while of getting these lines that they were all fed, uh, it didn't work for me anymore. And so it was really through a metaphysical reconciliation with God, reconciling with my introduction to God. For me, I wasn't born Hindu. I was born Christian. So my introduction to God was through Christ. And so I had to heal my relationship there um, before I could really um, feel fully integrated and, and at peace with my brothers and sisters and cousins um, in the church. So yeah. I am still legally a member. I, I still participate. Uh, but of course, in my heart, I'm religiously pluralistic. I love right. to chant the, the Hindu mantra. I love yoga. Um, I think some of the cultural ideas that, that the LDS church has are, are spot on. And I think some of them are, are not. I think that they're, for lack of a better word, corruptions in consciousness. Um, that, you know, sometimes when we like to follow the rules, we, we lose the spirit of the law and we embrace the letter of the law, therefore losing the spirit of the law. And I think that that's, that happens in any tradition over each generation. And just as Marianne says, uh, in the Jewish tradition, the expression is that every generation must rediscover God for itself. So I consider myself a devout follower of the core principle and the core impulse of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint, uh, even though I may not look, seem, or practice uh, like uh, the your average Mormon. I'm going to cut in here, Mindful Tribe. I'm talking to you if you've been trying and trying to lose weight. Maybe you're feeling it's hopeless. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you've tried so many times to lose weight. Well, you know what? It's not hopeless. Hypnosis changes everything because it transitions the way you think. It conquers your inner bully. I personally lost 35 pounds and I've kept it off with the help of hypnosis. Using mindfulness and hypnosis, I will help you lose your weight because I am trained in hypnosis. And you deserve it. You deserve to lose that weight. Send me an email, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com and put weight loss in the subject line. We'll jump on a free 45-minute call to answer all your questions. And now, back to the show. Well, I really loved the fact that in your book, you include so many exercises, mind-body exercises. There's guided meditations, journal prompts, you know, you've got so much in there that is really hands-on that people can use. Now, a lot of those, did you get them from other sources? Did you come up with them yourself? I'm just really intrigued because they're so practical and so reachable for anyone. You know, they all came from that original thing that I learned and um, what filtered through into the book is sort of my interpretation and expression and a little bit of an update. Um, mm -hmm. I've been a meditation teacher for a while, for uh, about a decade, uh, could be longer, um, but I've also been a student of these things since I was a young child. And um, I've, I've put them to the test and I've tried things and I've experienced things and I've been through pain and heartbreak. And, and the exercises and the tools that, that I've compiled um, are either credited to an original source if I draw them directly, um, or they are variations on exercises that were, were rewritten or customized uh, in order to work in a way that felt more practical and accessible to me. Um, after having worked with thousands and thousands of students, um, and this being my fourth book and getting tons and tons of feedback on the first three, um, you know, I, I think that I got better at um, really putting things into practice. And um, I wanted to give people real permission to, to try some of the things that I was doing in my own life. The things for me when I didn't know what else to do and, and the exercises that I was finding in books weren't resonating for me I would just pray and I would just say God how do I do this how do I get through this God show me what to do lead me guide me walk beside me help me find the way and you know the the idea was um, 
that I was originally just applying tools that I had heard from and studied and practiced in really specific ways. And so that's what I brought into this book is more specific, precise um, exercises that can also be infused with your own um, sincerity and turned into, they can be more of a, a wellness exercise that you do to with your team at work uh, to overcome or to create, or it could be something very intimate that you do that's very spiritual. Um, some people will will want to light candles and burn incense and, and other people will not want to do that, you know? Um, and so that was another thing that I tried to do, even in the, even in the exercises, which were largely um, original variations on true concepts. Um, so I'm just speaking truth. No one has a corner of truth. Notice I didn't trademark any of the exercises in there. They're, they're for us to explore together and to um, see what works. And one thing that um, I, I think that is always important for us to always realize is that you are your, your own number one responsibility and only you know you. So the getting to know yourself, only you can do that. And so within, from the inside of me is where these exercises came, from the inside of what I was able to create and experience in my life. And they'll only work from the inside of you. And so you really getting committed to the idea, like we said, powerfully deciding to let that, that negative thing go. Um, it's you really committing to the ceremony and the ritual and the exercise of it that's really going to make it work. But the good thing is all of them are also scientifically viable exercises. So the, the mind-body uh, physiological connection is actually something where the exercises in this book are not only based on ancient world traditions and universal spirituality, they're also based on modern scientific understanding of um, self-transformation, neuroplasticity, and goal achievement, that kind of thing. Ben, I'm, I'm curious and very interested. What are some daily routines, some daily exercises that you personally have in your life? Well, I always have some kind of personal ongoing practice, um, but for me, they do change seasonally. Um, I do pay attention to the, the holidays. I pay attention to what's happening uh, in current events collectively. And um, I, love to, I love the moon. I love the full moon. Um, and of course, in the old traditions, the full moon had um, such special significance because it, it lit up the night, you know, which which we we take for granted with our electricity and all of that. Um, so I, I definitely um, always have some kind of personal practice. And the biggest thing that I want to recommend is that you really make it work for you. The game changer that I had was when I went from sort of the monastery life of of it being pretty ritualized and rigid and perfect every day to lay person life um, when I when I needed to make it work, when I had things to do and I needed to just be sane and I needed to be a better version of myself and I needed to be more patient and more respectful and more um, intelligent, more noble in all the different ways. Um, and and the the perspective shift there was, treating it like it was a spa uh, experience. So instead of treating it like I'm doing this religious exercise that I need to do because I have to do it, um, I, I created this um, perspective shift where it was this like luxurious, beautiful spa experience that I loved in the morning. It sounds kind of funny, but um, and I let that sort of lead it. I really want to make my personal mechanism feel really safe and really healthy and really nourished. Um, first thing in the morning and last thing before bed. Um, and and so, so it does change, but I do meditate twice a day, 20 to 40 minutes minimum each time. Um, and, and I also want to just say it's more, more than just a meditation ritual or practice. It's about knowing all the different practices and always applying them. Mm -hmm. So when I drive, every time I drive, it becomes a mindful driving experience. Um, you know, and just like a meditation, I'm not always perfectly mindful. You know, I got to come back to the mantra. You know, uh, just like in meditation, come back to the mantra, come back to the breath, come back to the moment. Uh, my mind wanders, come back to the moment. 
So I, I try to make all of my meals um, mindful. Uh, even if they're not perfectly mindful the entire time, I sometimes eat quickly and I sometimes eat things that I shouldn't be eating. <laughs> um, but I do try. And, um, and so the, the attempt is to make your entire life a meditation, um, to infuse consciousness, mindfulness into all of the different aspects of, of daily living. So my morning walks, and so right now, okay, let me get specific for you. Right now, here's what my mornings look like. I get up around 5.45, because uh, I like to get up while it's still dark out. And I put on uh, like some athletic clothes, and I go for a little bit of a power walk just to get my blood flowing in the morning. And I live in Venice Beach, California, and so I walk to the beach and I go sit on the sand every morning and the sun rises behind me because I'm facing west and, and I watch as the birds and the dolphins and the seals swim around. I hear the waves of the ocean um, and, I'm, and I do meditate. I do close my eyes. I set a timer for 30 minutes usually and I keep my eyes closed and my body still for that 30 minutes. Uh, but then I usually take another 30 minutes or so, just enjoying the beach, just walking around, maybe taking my shoes off and putting my feet in the water uh, if it's not too cold. And if the dolphins are really close, I got to strip down to my underwear and get in there with them. <laughs> <laughs> so I just try to um, enjoy where I'm at, enjoy that I'm in um, this beautiful beach town and um uh, maybe I used to go to a cafe in the morning. Cafes are closed right now where I live. Right. Um, but all all that to say that I just try to bring it in. I just try to enjoy it. So whatever it is, just try to enjoy it. We don't just need to fight through it and, and grit our teeth and powerfully decide to let things go. That's part of it. But we also need to let this be genuinely nourishing for the nervous system. So I do different things to, to enjoy it um, every day. Thanks for sharing that with us, Ben. As we move on, I want to ask you a question about bullying because I've uh, worked in the field of bullying prevention for a long time. Do you have a story you can share with us about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference? Yes. Um, and, you know, uh, I have also done work with mindfulness in schools and, and bullying. It was an important topic. And um, there are a lot of other people's stories that I could share, but I'm going to share a personal one. And this is one that I've never shared publicly, but it really came up um, in high school. I was so insecure and I didn't know how insecure I was until I became secure much, much a long time later. <laughs> and um, and I was also navigating a challenging uh, identity crisis around religion, uh, my sexuality, puberty, and, um, you know, the cosmos all at once. Um, there, there were a lot of things going on. I went to three high schools in four years. My family moved around a lot. Um, I had in, endured some trauma as a child, so I was in therapy as a teen, but I never quite felt like I could really trust my therapist. And, you know, so there was a lot of different uh, dynamics at play. I was also in the priesthood and, um, and sort of felt like I was living multiple lives, sort of like I had created almost a mild sense of dissociative identity disorder where I was sort of living these different personalities and none of them were really even me. They were me playing out something that that I had seen or I thought I was supposed to do or, or I, I did so people would like me or I wanted a reaction or something like that, you know. And um, a memory that completely evaporated into the past and I completely forgot about um, was resurfaced when a, an old friend of mine reached out and said, you know, you did something when, when we were in 10th grade and it really, really hurt me. And what happened was a friend of mine, uh, a woman that a young woman I was going to school with and going to church with, um, there was a rumor that she made out with this guy. 
And I don't remember what I heard or what, but I remember saying, and she told me, and I remember after she told me, but it didn't dawn on me because I wasn't present to what was really happening. I said, oh, I heard you and -and so-and-so were making out at the football game. And she said, no. And I said, are you sure you're, you, you, you don't have to lie to us? And, and she said, no, that didn't happen. And I said, okay, okay. Um, and after that, I made a couple jokes about it. Um, over, the, over the course of the following weeks, even though she said it, it didn't happen, I mindlessly, as a 15-year-old, um, still made jokes about her making out with this guy at the football game, which even if she did do, was inappropriate to be making jokes about. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but I was bullying her. Mm. And, and, I, and it was such an important thing for me to hear, even all those years later, that, um, that it wasn't cool and that it hurt her and that it was, um, it was just icing on the cake of, of her own really challenging uh, teen years, you know? Because what do I remember? I remember my challenges. Of course. Um, I wasn't in her shoes, you know? Right. And, and one of the important things that we do in mindfulness is start to experience things from another person's perspective. And um, if I had been in a better practice of that at that time, I don't think any of that would have taken place. Well, Ben, thanks for being so vulnerable and sharing that story with us. That's a very powerful story. Ben, as we move on, I want to ask you five quick answer questions and just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has been probably the most influential mindfulness person in your life? In my life, the most influential mindfulness person, I would have to say um, Ron Alexander, Dr. Ronald Alexander. He wrote a book called Wise Mind, Open Mind. Um, I had other teachers who I studied with longer and more than him, uh, but none that embodied mindfulness in the way that he did. He was very thoughtful about how he spoke. He was very kind about what, what he would do. Um, and uh, when I was really in some challenging moments, he really... He really brought me back into the present moment and helped me walk through some very challenging initiatory experiences. So Dr. Ronald Alexander. Well, thanks for sharing that. I haven't read that book, Ben, so I'll, I'll check it out. Maybe uh, I'll make an intro. He's a great guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd like that. Uh, how has mindfulness affected your emotions? <sighs> well, I will say that I still have them. I still have all of them, um, every last one. And, uh, and, but I will say that mindfulness helps me really go into the experience of it. One of my clients um, that I work really closely with, um, I, I sometimes say before our sessions, I say, are you excited? And, um, and he used to say, yes, I'm excited. And then um, we did a mindfulness exercise where we would say, instead of identifying with our negative emotions, say that they're present, you know? Uh, so, so frustration is present. Impatience is present. Um, there's, there's frustration here. There is frustration, you know, identifying, mental noting, seeing what's there. And so my client now says, yes, there is excitement. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is excitement. So it kind of gives that little bit of breathing room so you can sort of be an observer of your own performance of your own Akashic theater of your own life uh, so that you can get a little bit more. I, I've used mindfulness to get more intimate with myself, um, not take myself so seriously and learn to, to see where my extremes and my emotions are. Uh, and the key right there is that mindfulness can then help me identify that process that brought me into that so I can start to set myself up for success. Like I say in the book, uh, there's an entire exercise uh, called developing a habit of setting yourself up for success. So it's like rigging yourself, setting it up so it's easy to do, kind of like setting out your clothes for the next day, kind of like having your self-care routine all lined up in the bathroom ready to go, setting yourself up for success. Put the serum right next to the face wash so you don't forget to use it after you wash your face. 
that kind of thing. That's a that's a great exercise, Ben. I want to ask you about breathing a little bit more specifically. Um, tell us about breathing and how it plays a part in your mindfulness practice. It's everything. It's the anchor. It's the it's the key anchor. Um, what I love about it is um, this this notion that as we breathe in. We're taking in pranic energy. We're taking in life force energy that animates the body. And then we're releasing it back to its source. Um, and this idea that, uh, you know, when we, when we look into each other's eyes, we're breathing from that same source of life force energy. And how long do we last if we don't breathe? Not very long. So as we breathe that life force energy and we're temporarily inflated with life, until we do it again and then we need it again and so there's something about the profundity of unity consciousness that comes from the notion of drawing upon the one atmosphere the the one source of life uh, that animates all of us all people and all beings so there's something with the breath that not just in the physiological exercises of it but in the understanding of it that helps me realize um that it's sort of the the thing that doesn't separate us the space between us doesn't separate us but rather holds us together ben you already recommended the book by ronald alexander wise mind open mind are there any other books you would recommend other than of course your own four books are tremendous and this current book we've been talking about modern spirituality i really very much appreciate it any other books uh, thank you. Yeah, um, definitely my books. <laughs> no, I, I, I wrote them to be compatible with one another. Uh, so you'll find uh, that they are very supportive of one another in a, in a self-contained ecosystem. Um, and also in each one of my books, I recommend a number of other books. I think books are one of the most important things um, that, that we've got. And uh, it's very high level art, uh, I believe books are. Um, so, so there's a lot that I could sit here and recommend. Um, I think that everybody has um, a, a different direction that their their path is taking them, really specifically. Um, but I think our generation needs to understand um, the way these principles have been applied by those in the know uh, to the collective. So. Um, things like studies on propaganda. Uh, Bernays wrote a book called uh, "Called Propaganda." It came out in 1934, something like that, and um, and it's about how um, so many of the decisions that we make are unconsciously decided for us through um, pre-selection. Um, what did you decide to wear today? Probably a shirt and probably pants. <laughs> um, you know, the way we dress, um, the way we live, so many different things are decided, are decided by sort of an invisible government. Um, and we have the opportunity to uh, become part of that, become part of the, uh, the expansion of consciousness. So I think that that's an important book. Uh, but, but what I think right now, the one that's really coming up is, um, is Marianne Williamson's most recent book, A Politics of Love. And that is the application of spiritual principles into um, governmental policy. Okay, I'll put all this in the show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. So Great. thanks for sharing that. And I know that you're on Instagram, Benjamin W. Decker on Instagram. So check that out. Is there any place else we should look to find you online, Ben? Uh, I'm on Twitter, Ben Decker. Um, and I am also on Facebook. Uh, my website uh, is being relaunched and it has a whole new archive of the library of all of my podcasts and all my content and articles that I've written, guided meditations and that kind of content. Um, so yeah, bendeckermeditation.com um, or benjaminwdecker.com, same website. Oh, okay. BenjaminWDecker.com. That's what I thought your website was, but mm -hmm. uh, I knew yeah. you were working on it. So, yeah, well, that's great. I really appreciate you being on the show today, Ben. I admire your uh, wisdom 
I admire how much you've been practicing mindfulness over the years and how you're able to share it so beautifully in this book. I have not read your other three books, but I would like to because uh, I like what you said, how they all work together and and complement each other. So I would like to read your other books as well because this one I highly recommend. So many great uh, exercises and uh, it's, it's just really written in a way that I think anybody can benefit from reading this book. So thanks for that. And as we wrap up, do you have any final words of advice for those listeners who are just kind of... Uh, dabbling in mindfulness, kind of learning about it a bit, but they'd like to achieve more uh, in that area? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's all about just being really present, not not uh, resisting what's going on in your life. Look, if, um, if you're attracted to mindfulness, there's a really good chance that it's it's because you're going through something. It's because there's an existential crisis or a grief or a loss or a goal or a challenge that you're facing. And so just be really present with your unique circumstances, be patient with yourself and allow yourself to be the co-creator of your curriculum, um, study, research, uh, but, but know that ultimately the, where the rubber meets the road is in, is in your own heart and in your own body and mind where, where you're taking those uh, those ideas and those nuggets and and allowing them to bring light into your own heart and um, changes into your own mind and and into your own life and behavior. So it's really about just truly, truly being very present with yourself and with your unique circumstances. De-emphasize pedagogy, de-emphasize dogma, de-emphasize ritual, and re-emphasize personal practice and personal direct revelation, direct experience. Ben, thanks so much for being on Mindfulness Mode today. All the best to you. All the best. Thank you so much. Bye now. Bye-bye. Mindful Tribe, thanks for listening, for subscribing, and for reviewing the show, and for telling your friends about Mindfulness Mode. Thanks also to Erica Flint's Cascade Hypnosis Center for being our valued sponsor. Erica is a terrific teacher of hypnosis, and I know that because I am a graduate of her program. Now, if you're a healer, a coach, a therapist, a counselor, or just someone who loves helping people. You might want to consider the powerful results that can be achieved with hypnosis. You can learn how to do it. Contact the team over at CascadeHypnosisCenter.com and take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.